This is the anthem. Here's what you came for. This is the moment. Magic was made for. Hello there. Welcome back to Fanfit House. Take a ride with us on the Hogwarts Express. Walk down Main Street with our best super pals. And defy gravity as we talk about all things fandom. Hello, and welcome back to FanFit's House, a member of the Real Fans Podcast Network. I'm Emma. And I'm Gabby. And today we are going to be revisiting our discussion about the history of Marvel. Um, but this time we are going to be focusing on the development of the Marvel Cinematic Universe versus the comics. Um, yes. We're also going to talk about um, their business practices and the cultural impact and how it relates to other film studios. Yes. So, yeah. So, shall we get started with the development of the MCU? Yeah, let's just jump right in. Okay. So, by 2005, Marvel Entertainment had been um, had begun planning to produce its own films independently and distribute them through Paramount Pictures. Previously, Marvel had co-produced several superhero films with Columbia Pictures, New Line Cinema, and others, including a seven-year development deal with 20th Century Fox. So um, Marvel made relatively little profit from its licensing deals with other studios, and they wanted to get more money out of its films while maintaining artistic control of the projects and distribution. Um, Avi Arad, head of Marvel's film divisions, was uh, pleased with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films at Sony Pictures, but was less pleased with others. As a result, Arad decided to form Marvel Studios, excuse me, Marvel Studios, Hollywood's first major independent film studio since DreamWorks. Kevin Feige, Arad's second-in-command, realized that unlike Spider-Man and the X-Men, whose film rights were licensed to Sony and Fox, respectively, Marvel still owned the rights to the core members of the Avengers. And Feige, who is a self-described fanboy, envisioned creating a shared, a shared universe, just as creators Stan Lee and Jack Kirby had done with their comic books in the early 1960s. So to raise the capital for these films, uh, the studio secured funding from a seven-year, $525 million revolving credit facility with Merrill Lynch. Um, Marvel's plan was to release individual films for their main characters and then merge them in a crossover film, which we, right, we got Iron Man, Captain America, yeah. Iron Man and then too, the Avengers. And then the Avengers in 2012. Yeah. So, um, Arid doubted the strategy, but instead it was uh, his reputation that helped secure the initial financing, and he ended up resigning the following year, leaving Faye as studio chief in 2007. Yeah, which he became at 33 years old. The Which, like, good for him. Chief. Yeah. And, I mean, he's still it. Like, you'll see him come out, like, at D23 or other panels, and it's like, president of Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige, like, it's yeah. it's still a name that in 2023 that mm -hmm. is 
um, huge part of the MCU and Marvel. Yep. Um, in order to preserve its artistic integrity, Marvel Studios formed a creative committee of six people familiar with the, its comic book lore. Feige, Marvel Studios co-president Luis Despacito. Right? Okay. Marvel yeah, Comics yeah. president of publishing Dan Buckley. Marvel's chief creative officer Joe Quasda. Quesada. Quesada. Um, writer Brian Michael Bendis and Marvel Entertainment President Alan Fine, who oversaw the committee. Feige initially referred to the shared narrative um, continuity of these films as the, quote, Marvel Cinema Universe, end quote, but later used the term Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is still being used today. Um, and since the franchise expanded to other media, this phrase has been used by some to refer to the feature theatrical released films only. Which makes sense. I yeah. kind of, that's kind of what I picture too. I do that in like some of the shows, the like WandaVision, yeah. Loki, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Hawkeye, like kind of those the ones. ones that have played into the newer films, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I don't count at the current moment Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special or the no. Werewolf Special. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 So, in 2008, the first tie-in comic was released, and Quesada noted that the comics would be set within the continuity of the films, but were not intended to be a direct adaptation. Rather, they would explore, quote, something that happened off-screen or flesh out something briefly mentioned. Faye was involved with the creation of the comics with the film's screenwriters and sometimes, excuse me, with the film's screenwriters sometimes as well. Marvel Comics worked with Brad Winderbaum, Jeremy Lockdom, and Will Corona Pilgrim at Marvel Studios to decide which concepts should be carried over from the Marvel Comics universe to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and what to show in these tie-in comics, as well as what to leave for the films. Marvel had clarified which of the tie-in comics are considered canonical MCU stories, with the rest merely inspired by the MCU. Mm -hmm. Quote, where we get to show off all the characters from the film in costume and in comic form. Yes. Um, in June of 2010, Marvel Television was launched with Jeff Loeb as head. That would have been sure. my guess. Um, in August 2011, Marvel announced a series of direct-to-video short films called Marvel One-Shots, the name derived from the label used by Marvel Comics for their one-shot comics. Co-producer Brad Winderma Winderbaum excuse me, um, called the short films, quote, a fun way to experiment with new characters and ideas, end quote, and to expand the MCU. Each short film is designed to be a self-contained story that provides more backstory for characters or events introduced in the films. By July of 2012, Marvel Television had entered into discussions with ABC to create a show set in the MCU. The network ultimately created the series Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Agent Carter, and Inhumans, which was a co-production with IMAX Corporation. 
Mm-hmm. In November of 2013, Disney was set to provide Netflix with the live-action series Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist, leading up to the miniseries The Defenders. In October of 2014, Marvel Studios held a press event to announce the titles of their Phase 3 films. Oh, geez, this is a lot of dates. <clears throat> yeah. Last one. In March 2015, Marvel's Vice President of Animation Development and Production, Court Lane, stated that animation tie-ins to the MCU were quote-unquote in the works. That July, Marvel Studios partnered with Google to produce the phone news progr- program WHIH Newsfront with Christine Everhart, a series of in-universe YouTube videos serving as the center of viral marketing campaign to promote the films and universe. By September 2015, after Marvel Studios was integrated into Walt Disney Studios, with Feige reporting to Walt Disney Studios chairman Alan Horn instead of Marvel Entertainment CEO Isaac Perlmutter, the studio's creative committee had uh, nominal input on the films moving forward, though they continued to consult on Marvel television productions, which remained under Perlmutter's control. All key film decisions going forward were made by um, Faye Despacito and Victoria Alonso. And Faye mentioned that Avengers Endgame of 2019 would provide a quote-unquote definitive end to the films and storylines preceding it, with the franchise having quote-unquote two distinctive periods, everything before Endgame and everything after. He later said that Phase 3 would include, conclude, quote, the Infinity Saga. In April of 2016, Netflix ordered The Punisher, which was a spinoff of Daredevil. In April 2016, um, the Disney-owned cable network Freeform announced Cloak and Dagger. In December of 2016, a six-part web series, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Slingshot, was revealed, which debuted on ABC.com on December 13th of 2016. It follows Elena Yo-Yo Rodriguez on a secret mission shortly before the start of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s fourth season with Natalia Cordova Buckley reprising her role. In May of 2017, Marvel announced that Runaways had received a series order from Hulu, and by November of 2017, Disney was looking to develop a new Marvel television series for their streaming service, Disney+. So, in July of 2018, Feige noted discussions had begun with Disney regarding any potential involvement Marvel Studios would have with the streaming service, since Feige felt that the service was, quote, an important thing for the company, end quote. In September of 2018, it was reported that Marvel Studios was developing several limited series centered on second-tier characters from the MCU who had not and were unlikely to star in their own films. Each series was expected to be six to eight episodes and would be produced by Marvel Studios rather than Marvel Television, with Feige taking on a hands-on role in each series' development. Um, Feige noted the series being developed for the streaming services would, quote, tell stories that we wouldn't be able to tell in a theatrical experience, a longer form narrative, end quote. He also added that being asked by Disney to create these series, quote, and energized everyone creatively, end quote, within Marvel Studios, 
since they, quote, could play in a new medium and throw the rules out the window in terms of structure and format, end quote. By February of 2019, Netflix had canceled all of its Marvel series. By May of that same year, Marvel announced that Hellstrom had been greenlit for Hulu. Um, and then in July of 2019, Feige announced that the Phase 4 slate at San Diego Comic-Con, hey, hey, <laughs> consisting of films and, for the first time, television event series on Disney+. Plus. The Phase 4 slate includes What If, uh, the first animated series from Marvel Studios. And by July 2021, the studio was creating an animation branch and mini studio to focus more and to focus on more animated content beyond What If. In September 2019, Sony created a real version of the fictional The Daily Bugle website as part of a viral marketing campaign to promote the home release of Spider-Man: Far From Home 2019. Inspired by real-world conspiracy-pushing websites such as that of Alex Jones, the website features J.K. Simmons reprising his role of J. Jonah Jameson in a video where he speaks out against Spider-Man before asking viewers to like and subscribe. <coughs> Which I saw one of the like trailers that looks like it was like a news report on mm-hmm. Times Square. I in- did see that. Yeah, like, but I saw it, like, in my own, like, I was standing in Times Square. Because really? I was, yeah, because I was there for, um, No Way Home, not far from Yeah. Home. So they did it again for No Way Home as well. That's cool. Yeah. 2021. Yeah. Um, in October of 2019... Um, further corporate um, restructuring saw Feige named Chief Creative Officer of Marvel Entertainment with Marvel Television becoming part of Marvel Studios officially and executives of Marvel Television reporting to Feige. In January of 2021, Feige said never say never to potentially reviving the Netflix series. Um, but noted that Marvel Studios was focused on their new Disney Plus series announced at that time. So, you know. WandaVision, Loki, all those guys. Those are yeah. more important. Agreed. Just a little. <laughs> They're actual, um, like, MCU characters and non, like, we'll give Netflix a show. Characters. Yeah. Yeah. In April of 22, excuse me, April of 2022, <laughs> Um, Feige said that he and Marvel Studios were on a creative retreat to plan and discuss the MCU films for the following 10 years. In May of that same year, it was revealed that Marvel Studios was developing a new Daredevil series for Disney+, Plus, which announced in July as Daredevil Born Again. That July, Feige announced some of the films in the series for Phase 5 and 6 at, once again, San Diego Comic-Con, revealing that the second three phases were collectively known as, quote-unquote, the multiverse saga. Feige explained that Marvel Studios realized during development on Phase 4 that it would be different from the first three phases with more projects over a shorter period of time. This also came after the, quote-unquote, creative experience of ending Phase 3 and the Infinity Saga with Avengers Infinity War of 2018 and Avengers Endgame. Therefore, instead of culminating every 10 months in an Avengers movie, they decided to leave that culmination until the end of the Multiverse Saga, 
with the second three phases all building to Avengers, the Kong Dynasty, and Avengers Secret Wars, which will be released in 2026, projected. Yeah. Um, television specials from the studio are also marketed as um, Marvel Studios special presentations. So, yeah, like that's like the werewolf thing we were talking about earlier that I can't yeah. remember the name of that I never saw. Okay, going a little bit back, um, in December of 2017, the Walt Disney Company agreed to acquire assets from 21st Century Fox, including 20th Century Fox, and that transaction officially closed on March 19th of 2019. The acquisition saw the return of the film rights of Deadpool, the X-Men characters, the Fantastic Four characters, to Marvel Studios, which would create richer, more complex worlds of interrelated characters and stories. Some of the first elements previously controlled by 20th Century Fox to be integrated into the MCU were the organization's sword in the Disney Plus series, WandaVision, in the fictional country, Madripoor, in the series, The I Falcon. I Madripoor, yeah. Madripoor. In the series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Additionally, Patrick Stewart appeared as Earth-838 Professor Charles Xavier in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness 2022, portraying a different version of the character that he previously played in 20th Century Fox's X-Men film series. While Kamala Khan um, was revealed to have a genetic mutation in Miss Marvel, with star Aman Vellani confirming that she was the first mutant in the MCU. Yeah. You still haven't okay. seen that series, have you? Nope. Moving forward. forward. <laughs> Moving forward into business practices. So this is like, how do they make a Marvel movie? How does this happen? What is the yeah. process? Yeah. Right. So this is kind of a little bit more generic, but like not specific to one movie. It's a little bit more of a generic process as well as like kind of the like storyline and like stuff like that. Yeah. So um, Marvel Studios often puts together a lookbook of influences from the comics and art by Marvel's visual department, de- visual development department, and this is to create a visual template for a project. These are put together at company retreats, which the studio holds every 18 months or so. And these are to plan out and develop the phases of the MCU. These lookbooks are not always shown to directors, though, with Marvel sometimes preferring to let the director offer their own ideas first. Mm -hmm. So when choosing a director for the project, Marvel Studios looks for filmmakers to hire who are able to guide a film with some of their choices considered out of left field, given a director's previous work. Feige remarked, you don't have to have directed a big, giant visual effects movie to do a big, giant visual effects movie for us. You just have to have done something singularly sort of awesome, which I think is really cool. I do, too. I mean, oh, what was the director who made um, The Eternals? Oh, I don't know. I forget. But she had not done, like, a big Marvel-type film before Eternals. Well, if it what it boils down to, it's a story about a family. It's not really a yeah. Marvel-type story. 
Chloe Zhao is the director's name. Ah, I forget what yes. she had done before. Um, I was going to say, though, like, as cool as that is, it often leads to, like, a lot of the films feeling kind of, like, not related at all. Yeah. Like... They, fe- they don't feel cohesive. Like, I don't see how there's going to be a big mashup at the end. Like, with the Avengers movie, you can f- see how there's going to be a big mashup yeah, at the end. Because like, they're all kind of the same. I feel like it's, like, Guardians, like, with James Gunn um, as the director. And, oh, who directed Ragnarok? Taika Waititi. Yeah, so those films feel so different than... Your Iron Man's, your Captain America's, yeah. your... And, like, but, like, they fit. They kind of fit, you know? Yeah. But, like, Multiverse and Va- of Madness and and Eternals. Thor, Love and Thunder, and Eternals, they are all so entirely different. Yeah. I don't see a way that they could come together. Like, you watch Iron Man and you watch Captain America and you watch the uh black widow right and you can kind of tell they all kind of go together so i don't know it it like (laughs) (coughs) sorry i'm still getting over this cold no Um, problem there's there's pros and cons to it all you know yeah um, the studio ensures directors are open to the idea of the shared universe and are willing to include connective material, such as Kenneth Branagh and Joe Johnston needing to include Avengers setup scenes in Thor and Captain America the first Avenger, respectively. Which um, makes sense. Yeah. Which, Kenneth Branagh, I always forget that he directed Thor. Right? Because he's, he's Lockhart. And yeah. Like, the, like, main Shakespeare actor in, like, all the Shakespeare films. Yeah. It is It is funny to me. Yeah. Um, Marvel Studios usually has a big idea they would like to explore or build into a project, such as Hydra Infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D. and Captain America, the Winter Soldier, with it up to the filmmakers to interpret and improv a little bit to get there. After these ideas have been developed, the creative team begins to explore ideas happening in other future projects to see how to make any larger universe connections. So, there was a large large amount of collaboration between the Russo brothers and writers Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, with the other Phase 3 directors and writers making sure that everything lined up right for the Marvel for, excuse me, for the MCU's culmination in Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Um, Marvel Studios also began contracting their actors for multiple films, including signing actor Samuel L. Jackson to a then-unprecedented nine-movie contract. Jeez. Wow. Um, Imagine that job security. Right? Could you imagine, as an actor? Imagine that job security as an actor. I mean, it's also Samuel L. Jackson, so, like... But still. Yeah. I think it's, oh... Um, Wong. Um, Benedict Wong. That is, like, his biggest security, because I think they just signed him on for every movie at this point. Because he's in every single movie. He's in so many. Yeah. He was in Shang-Chi. Which you haven't seen. (sighs) Here, I cut that out. People don't need to know that I still haven't seen that movie. 
It's not that I don't want to. It's just I haven't had time to sit down and actually watch a movie. I feel that. The only time I actually had time was when I was sick and then I just slept all the time. So I didn't want to like fall asleep in the middle of a movie. So I started on a new series and it was really good. Anyway. Feige said the studio has all actors sign contracts for multiple films with the norm being for three or more and the nine or 12 film deals are more rare. Actors' contracts also feature clauses that allow Marvel to use up to three minutes of an actor's performance from one film in another, which Marvel describes as bridging material. By the start of Phase 4, Marvel Studios was no longer contracting actors for a large number of projects, with deal lengths varying for each actor and project. Feige said the studio was looking for actors who were excited to join the franchise and appear in multiple projects, without being locked into contract obligations. Um, He also noted that they were starting to include theme park attractions in actors' deals, which makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Um, And in August of 2012, so going back a little bit, Marvel signed Joss Whedon to an exclusive contract through June 2015 for film and television, With the deal, he would contribute creatively on Phase 2 of the MCU and develop the first television series set in-universe. I don't think I've ever heard Joss Whedon's name, like, separated. It's like one word to me, Joss Whedon. So it was... I was like... Oh, Oh, I know. When you see it spelled out, you're like, who? Yeah. And then you say it, and you're like, oh. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, the spelling is yikes. Yeah. In April of 2017, James Gunn revealed that he'd be working with Marvel, quote, to help design where the Guardians of the Galaxy character stories go, and to make sure that the future of Marvel Cosmic Universe is as special and authentic and magical as what we have created so far. I think that was supposed to be Marvel Comics Universe, not Cosmic. No, Cosmic would make sense. Okay. Right? Like, the, the that's where Guardians of okay. the Galaxy true, takes true, place. Okay, true, 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 true. Yeah. Um, by December 2020, because of the impact of COVID-19 had on theaters and film studios shifting away from theatrical releases... Marvel Studios began exploring updated contracts for actors, writers, directors, and producers to receive adjusted compensation in the event a film had to debut on Disney Plus instead of in theaters. The RAP reported it was believed that the new contracts would only apply to films about to enter production and was unclear if any adjustments would be made to contracts for films already completed but not yet released. So think your Black Widow and Eternals and all those that came out during the pandemic. For Marvel Television, Loeb explained that they saw themselves as producers providing support to the showrunner. Quote, we're involved in every aspect of the production, whether it's being in the writer's room, editing on set, casting, every step of the production goes through the Marvel team to best tell the story that we can, end quote. So all these quotes, I'm hearing that everybody is really dedicated to maintaining the structural integrity of these stories, which I really appreciate as a consumer. 
Um, he added that the studio is able to work on so many story- series across different networks and platforms because they all, all they needed was one person from the studio working on each series to help guide the process. Yes. Actors appearing in Marvel television series such as Charlie Cox, who is Matt Murdock slash Daredevil in Daredevil, and Adrian Pulaki, who is Bobby Morse slash Mockingbird in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., were contractually obliged to appear in a Marvel film if asked. And when developing the crossover miniseries, The Defenders, showrunner Marco Ramirez consulted with the creators of all the individual Marvel Netflix series, having them read each of the scripts for The Defenders and provide insight into individual characters' worlds. Which is, like, really cool. Yeah, so, in December of 2021, Feige confirmed that Cox would reprise the role of Daredevil in Marvel Studios' MCU productions, with Cox first reprising the role in the Spider-Man film, No Way Home. Yes. Additionally, um, De... De... Onofrio? De... Kingpin. The guy who plays Kingpin in the um, Daredevil series. Yeah. Uh, um, De... He yeah, yeah he reprised his role as Kingpin in the Disney Plus series Hawkeye, which was also released in 2021. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's all we got. But we have the studios kind of thing. Yeah, but that's all we got for yeah. that. Last but not least... Kind of the cultural impact with um, the studios and how certain film studios kind of reacted to the start of the MCU and everything like that. Like DC and 20th Century Fox and Sony and their partnerships with regards to 20th Century Fox and Sony. Kind of stuff like that. Yeah. So... After the release of The Avengers in May of 2012, Tom Russo of Boston.com noted that aside from the occasional novelty such as Alien vs. Predator, the idea of a shared universe was virtually unheard of in Hollywood. Since that time, the shared universe model created by Marvel Studios has begun to be replicated by other film studios that held rights to other comic book characters. In April of 2014, Tuna Amobi, a media analyst for Standards and Poor Equity Research Services, stated that the in the previous three to five years, Hollywood began planning, quote, mega franchises, end quote, for years to come, opposed to working on one blockbuster at a time. Amobi added that a lot of these superhero characters were just being left there to gather dust. Disney has proved that this approach and genre can be a goldmine, but not always. With more studios now playing the mega franchise game, Doug Cruitz, a media analyst for Cohen and Company, feels that the allure will eventually die for audiences. If Marvel's going to make two or three films a year and Warner Brothers is going to do at least a film every year and Sony's going to do a film every year and Fox is going to do a film every year, can everyone do as well in that scenario? And he's not entirely sure that they can. So in March of 2018, Patrick Shanley of The Hollywood Reporter opined, 
Sure. That the key differences between a regular franchise, such as the Fast and the Furious or Pitch Perfect films, and a shared universe is the amount of planning and intertwining that goes into each individual film. It's all too easy to make a film that exists solely for the purpose of setting up future installments and expanding a world, rather than a film that stands on its own merits while definitely hinting or winking at its place in the larger mythos. In that, the MCU has flourished, end quote. He felt that Iron Man, quote, itself was aimed at being an enjoyable standalone spirit experience, not as an overall advertisement for the 17 subsequent films. Th that mentality has persisted through most of the MCU films over the past decade, which is all the more impressive as its roster of heroes now exceeds the two dozen mark, end quote. Yes. Now we're going to move over to um, DC Entertainment and Warner Brothers Pictures. Um, in October 2012, following its legal victory over Joe Schuster's estate for the rights of Spider-Man, Warner Brothers Pictures announced that it planned to move ahead with its long-awaited Justice League film, uniting such DC Comics superheroes as Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Wonder Woman. Um, the company was expected to take the opposite approach to Marvel, releasing individual films for the characters after they have appeared in a team-up film. So basically, like, if Avengers, uh, the Avengers 2012 film came out first, and then Iron Man, Captain America, you name it. The release of Man of Steel in 2013 was intended to be the start of a new shared universe for DC, laying the groundwork for the future slate of films based on DC Comics. In 2014, Warner Brothers announced that slate of films similarly to Disney and Marvel claiming dates for films years in advance. That year, DC CCO Jeff Johns stated that Jeff John Johns? Mm -hmm. Okay. That year, DC CCO Jeff Johns stated that the television series Arrow and the Flash were set in a separate universe from the new film one, later clarifying that Quote, we look at it as the multiverse. We have our TV universe and our film universe, but they all coexist. For us, creatively, um, it's about allowing everyone to make the best possible product, to tell the best story, to do the best world. Everyone has a vision, and you really want that vi to let the visions shine through. It's just a different approach than Marvel's. End quote. Discussing the apparent failure of the cinematic universe's first team-up film, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, to establish a successful equivalent to the MCU, Emily Van Der Werf um, noted that where the MCU has a television-like showrunner in Feige, the visionary behind the Marvel's entire slate, the DCEU has director Zack Snyder, whose DC films seemingly start from the assumption that people have come not to see an individual story but a long series of teases for others um she says it's like he knows what he needs to do but can't focus on the task at hand tv certainly isn't immune to the problem but shows that get caught up in high concept premises and big picture thinking before doing the necessary legwork to establish characters and their relationships tend to be canceled. Subsequently, in May of 2016, 
Warner Brothers gave oversight of the DCEU to Johns and Executive John Berg in an attempt to, quote, unify the desperate attempts of the DC movies and emulate Marvel's success, end quote. The two were made producers on the Justice League films on top of John's involvement in several solo films, such as the post-production process of Suicide Squad or the writing process of a standalone Batman film. After the successful release of Wonder Woman in June of 2017, DC decided to begin de-emphasizing the shared nature of their films, with DC Entertainment President Diane Nelson stating, quote, Our intention certainly moving forward is using the continuity to help make sure nothing is diverging in a way that doesn't make sense, but there's no instance... Um, there, but there's no insistence upon an overall storyline or interconnectivity in that universe. Moving forward, you'll see the DC movie universe being a universe, but one that comes from the heart of the filmmaker who's creating them. End quote. Good. Honestly, good. Honestly, I mean, I've been kind of mad at Warner Brothers in DC's um, decisions more recently, but not because of this but because of how they're treating some of the films. I've talked yeah. about it a little bit. I, I'm I just, forever mad that Batgirl will be canceled and I'll never see the light of day of that film. I'm sorry. Because she's my favorite. She's one of my favorite superheroes from DC. Yeah. But I also feel like trying to emulate the Marvel model doesn't work. Marvel already created no, the wheel. Yeah. You can't try and create it again. It's already invented. It's going to be seen as old, old yeah. hat. It's going to be seen as just trying to copy them. And that's yeah. what they did for a long time. I was like, I don't care about DC because I have zero, zero connection to any of these characters. I don't care about them. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think it's good that they're trying to differentiate themselves now and just kind of make what they want to make with yeah. their characters. Yeah. Which... Flash is ending this year, which is so sad because it's been Hasn't running. Hasn't the Flash like, been on the air for like a million years? Yes. And he should have taken on the role of the Flash in the movies, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, additionally, DC began focusing on films that were completely separate from everything else set entirely outside of the DCEU um, label, which was their new label for their um movies so it stands for um dc extended universe with the first film centered on the joker and another film that is part of this is the batman which came out last year with robert pattinson as bruce wayne um and in august of last year warner brothers um discovery ceo david saslav announced a 10-year plan for the DC Extended Universe, similar to the one that Horn and Iger employed with Feige for the MCU. Yeah. Which has so kind of failed. Because yeah. of cancellations with the Flash movie. Yep. So, moving on to 20th Century Fox... Um, in November of 2012, 20th Century Fox announced plans to create their own shared universe consisting of Marvel properties that it holds the rights to, including the Fantastic Four and X-Men, while hiring Mark Miller as supervising producer. Miller said, quote, 
Fox are thinking, we're sitting on some really awesome things here. There's another side of the Marvel Universe. Let's try and get something, get some cohesiveness going. So they brought me in to oversee that, really. To meet with the writers and directors to suggest new ways we could take this stuff and new properties that could spin out of it, end quote. X-Men Days of Future Past released in 2014, and it was Fox's first steps towards expanding their stable of Marvel properties and creating this universe ahead of the release of a Fantastic Four reboot filmed the next year. In May of 2014, Days of Future Past and Fantastic Four screenwriter Simon Kinberg stated that the later film, excuse me, the latter film would not take place in the same universe as the X-Men films, explaining that, quote, None of the X-Men movies have acknowledged the notion of a sort of superhero team, the Fantastic Four. And the Fantastic Four acquire powers, so for them to live in a world where mutants are prevalent is kind of complicated. Because you're like, oh, you're just a mutant? Like, what's so fantastic about you? They live in discrete universes, end quote. In July of 2015... X-Men director Brian Singer said that there was still potential for a crossover between the X-Men and Fantastic Four franchises if reaction to Fantastic Four and X-Men Apocalypse warranted it. Feeling that Singer's effects in Apocalypse to establish a larger world similar to the MCU did not meet the standards established by Marvel. Vanderweff noted that unlike Feige's ability to serve as pseudo-showrunner, Singer is instead, quote, steeped in a film the way movie stories have always been told. So when it comes to time to have Apocalypse devotee with story threads from the earlier X-Men First Class, directed by Matthew Vaughn, both Singer's direction and Simon Kinberg's script rely on hackneyed devices and clumsy storytelling, indicating a lack of the kind of big picture thinking this sort of mega franchise requires, end quote. In his review of Dark Phoenix, Joe Morgenstern of the Wall Street Journal characterized the entire X-Men film series as being a notoriously erratic franchise. And in March of 2019, the film rights of Deadpool and the X-Men characters, as well as the Fantastic Four characters, were returned to Marvel Studios following the Walt Disney's acquisition of 21st Century Fox. Now let's move over to Sony Pictures, which is just, let's talk about Spider-Man and the rights of Spider-Man. Oh, geez, so much drama. Yep. In November of 2013, Sony Pictures Entertainment co-chairman Amy Pascal announced that the studio intended to expand their universe created within the Mark Webb Amazing Spider-Man series with spin-off adventures for supporting characters and an attempt to replicate Marvel and Disney's model. The next month, Sony announced Venom and Sinister Six films both set in the Amazing Spider-Man universe. With this announcement, IGN stated that the spinoffs are, quote, the latest example of what we can refer to as the Avengers effect in Hollywood as studios work to build interlocking movie universes, end quote. But Sony chose not to replicate the Marvel Studios model of introducing individual characters first before bringing them together in a team-up film, instead making the Spider-Man adversaries the stars of future films. In February of 2015, Sony Pictures and Marvel Studios announced that the Spider-Man franchise would be retooled with a new film co-produced by Feige and Pascal being released in July of 2017 and the character being integrated into the MCU, which of course was Spider-Man Homecoming. 
Um, Sony Pictures would continue to finance, distribute, own, and have final creative control of the Spider-Man films. With this announcement, sequels to The Amazing Spider-Man 2 were cancelled. And by November of 2015, the Venom and Sinister Six films were, as well as spinoffs based on female characters in the Spider-Man universe, were no longer moving forward. By March of 2016, the Venom film had itself been retooled to start its own franchise unrelated to the MCU Spider-Man. A year later, Sony officially announced the Venom film to be in development for an October 5th, 2018 release, along with a film centered on the characters Silver Sable and Black Cat, known as Silver and Black. Both projects were not intended to be a part of the MCU nor spinoffs to Spider-Man Homecoming, but rather a part of an intended separate shared universe known as the Sony Spider-Man Universe, SSU. The mid-credit scene of Venom... What did I say? Venema? Venema? I have no idea. The mid-credit scene of Venom, Let There Be Carnage, 2021, hinted at Eddie Brock slash Venom joining the MCU, which was confirmed with the release of Spider-Man No Way Home, 2021, through an uncredited cameo appearance in its mid-credit scene. Spider-Man No Way Home also featured the Spider-Man interactions from Sam Raimi and Webb's Spider-Man films, both reprised by Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, respectively. Um, after Sony canceled their shared universe plans and started sharing the Spider-Man character with Marvel Studios, multiple critics discussed their failure at replicating the MCU. Scott Meslow of The Week noted the perceived flaws of the first Amazing Spider-Man films outside of its lead performances um, and how the sequel, quote, doubles down on all the missteps of the original while adding a few of its own. We now have a textbook example of how not to reboot a superhero franchise, and if Sony and Marvel are wise, they'll take virtually all those lessons at to heart as they chart Spider-Man's next course. End quote. Um, Scott Mendelson noted also that The Amazing Spider-Man 2 was sold as less a sequel to The Amazing Spider-Man than a backdoor pilot for Spider-Man vs. The Sinister Six. Had Sony stuck with the original plan of a scaled-down superhero franchise, one that really was rooted in romantic drama, they would have at least stuck out in a crowded field of superhero franchises. When every superhero film is now going bigger, Amazing Spider-Man could have been distinguished itself by going small and intimate. And this would have saved Sony a boatload of money and potentially reversed the film's relative financial failure. Okay, so last but not least, um, there's just a little bit of uh, academia surrounding Marvel. Um, And so, yeah, um, in September of 2014, the University of Baltimore announced a course beginning in the 2015 spring semester revolving around the Marvel Cinematic Universe to be taught by Arnold T. Bloomberg, quote, media genres, media marvels, end quote, examines how, quote, Marvel series of interconnected films and television shows, plus related media and comic book sources, and Joseph Campbell's monomyth of the hero's journey offer important insights into modern culture, end quote. 
as well as Marvel's efforts to establish a viable universe of plot lines, characters, and backstories. I've never thought about um, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey because I've been taught it so many times. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, have, do you know anything about it? Not really. Okay, hold on. Let me find it so I can explain it real quick. It's been a little bit of time since I've done it. So it's a circle. Yeah. And basically what normally I've heard is think Luke's journey and a new hope while I'm reading this more so than a Marvel hero. So the hero gets a call to adventure. So Luke finds R2 and C-3PO and is like, hey, yo, come with me. Um, Let's save Leia. Then they, he's fat. Hold on. Why is this so small? Okay. Then he meets up with a guardian or mentor, which is, um, in this case, Obi-Wan. And then he gets challenges and all that stuff. And then there's usually like the death of what the character was beforehand. So let's go with he's now a Jedi. A Jedi. Yeah. Um, and then transformation and then kind of like the return to it all. So it's like the circle that a film character I I would like to do an episode where we go more in depth of this because this is a very brief description. I've done like a full like class presentation on it probably before okay i would totally be down that sounds really interesting yeah and like lord of the rings um star wars like kind of those stuff is usually what i hear harry potter more so than marvel so i'd really like to hear how this professor uses it for marvel because the only one i could think of is captain america definitely captain america I can see the Harry Potter one super clearly, though. Yeah. Like, super clearly. I did um, a, like, Girl Scout class about storytelling, and it related to Universal Studios. And they literally taught us it. And then we're like, let's go on the Spider-Man ride. So, like, <laughs> they used it for Spider-Man, the Amazing Spider-Man kind of character, too. Yeah. With Uncle Ben kind of being the mentor there. Makes but. sense. So, what do you say we get into some fandom news? Yeah, let's do it. Um, Amanda Seyfried is currently workshopping a musical version of Thelma and Louise with Evan Rachel Wood in talks to join the project. Universal Parks and Resorts is planning a year-round Halloween Horror Nights destination in Las Vegas. Yes. The Adventures by Disney River Cruise Sailings will return to three iconic European locations, the Rhine River, the Danube River, and the Seine River? I know that one's the Seine. Seine? I know it's the Danube River. Anyway, in 2024, and they will be hosting a new um, Danube River Cruise Magical Holidays voyage in 2024 during the New Year's holiday. 
Colton Ryan and Anna Uzili to star in the new Candor and Ebb musical, New York, New York, which opens this spring on Broadway. Universal Parks and Resorts announces a new family-focused theme park in Frisco, Texas, which will be designed specifically for families with young children. So it looks like Trolls is going to be in the concept art and stuff like that. That's like That'll be cute. For like no big roller coasters. It's going to be all like kiddie rides for the like five-year-olds. Very fun. Very fun. Yeah. Euphoria star Maude Aptow will make her stage debut as Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors beginning on February 7th. Hannah Waddingham will host the 2023 Olivier Awards in London. Mandalorian Season 3 will be landing on Disney Plus on March 1st of this year. The concert lineup has been announced for Mardi Gras 2023 at Universal Orlando Resort. The full lineup includes on February 4th, Patti LaBelle, February 10th, JVKE, February 11th, the Go-Go Dolls. What? Goo-Goo Dolls. Goo-Goo Dolls. On February 11th, the Goo-Goo Dolls. February 18th, Marin Morris. February 19th, Willow. February 25th, Three Doors Down. March 4th, Sean Paul. And March 5th, Lauren Daigle. Can I go to this? Yeah. So, I want, I, um, something that I probably should mention is all the Mardi Gras um, concert lineups are part of like park admission. It is like literally like on the main stage by um oh what's the name? Rip Ride Rocket um the main big roller coaster in Universal Orlando Resort, not Islands of Adventure the other one. So like they just have like a huge grass, like, hub grass area almost with a huge that's stage a, in front of it. That's a fantastic lineup, though. Goo Goo Dolls, Marin Morris, Three Doors Down, Sean Paul, love them all. The Goo Goo Dolls always perform, like, every year. Wow. Yeah. Last but not least, we have Mackenzie Kurtz to join Wicked on Broadway as Glinda starting in February. Yes. Uh-huh. So, that's all we got. Yeah. yeah. Record time. Um, yeah. Yeah. We kicked butt. High five, sis. Woo! So uh, I guess we'll see these lovely, beautiful people in the outro. Yes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fan Fatales. We are a proud part of the Real Fans Podcast Network. That's right. And if you want to check out more shows on the network, you can find them at rf4rm.com. Join us next week um, where we will be talking about and celebrating um, a multitude of black characters of Star Wars as we honor and celebrate Black History Month. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe to us on YouTube. Please leave us a review and comment down below and tell us what you thought of the show. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FanFatalsPod for the latest updates. Now, Emma, where can the people find you on social media? My Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter are all at SnippyEmma, which is S-N-I-P-P-Y-E-M-M-A. What about you, Gabs? I'm at Gabby Gent, uh, pretty much everywhere. That's going to be G-A-B-Y-J-E-N-T. Our editing is by the wonderful Carolyn Meyer. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Bye! Bye! Bye. These are just this episode, not for the brand company, they're probably.